So glad that you're here. We're going to do the end at the beginning and the beginning at the end. Is everybody cool with that? Yeah, that's good. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I, uh, you know, I kind of fall into routines at church, just like, just like you do. And, um, and sometimes I'll, I'll have this moment where I'll be reading the scripture or I'll be reading some lyrics on the screen or praying. And I go, oh, yeah, I believe this. I don't know if you ever fall into that trap, but it can become such a part of just what we're doing that it, the words just flow out of your mouth or, you know, the words flash in front of your eyes and you're reading them and you're seeing them and, and, and you're thinking about them, but not really. And then you go, oh yeah, I, I really do believe this. There's a reason that I'm singing this song. There's a reason that I'm praying this way. There's a reason that I'm opening up the scripture because I, I, I believe this. And so we just thought we'd just flip it around this morning so that nobody just falls into a nice, settled, settled easy groove and we miss what God wants to do today. So if you want to grab your Bible, turn to Psalm 124. Plus this way we'll shame everyone who was super late which is definitely what we are about. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, all words that you're looking forward to at church. I remember we're in a series walking through the Psalms of Ascents. 15 Psalms between Psalm 120 and 134 that the Israelites would sing on their way to Jerusalem. You remember we've been using our imagination the last few weeks Imagine you are a first century Jewish person in the days of Jesus. Three times a year you would go to Jerusalem to worship with everybody. Not just with your family, but with everybody. Everybody's coming together. Your clan, your town, your village. If you were able, you were coming into Jerusalem three times a year. The Passover in the spring uh, to remember how God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Fifty days later, you're back for Pentecost, remembering how God gave the law to the Israelites on Mount Sinai and what a big deal that was because God was living with man and here's the way that you should live. And then at the end of the year, in what we would consider the fall, they would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles to thank God for all that he had done and all that he had provided for them during that calendar year. And so three times a year, you can imagine your family, your clan, your cousins, your grandpa's cousins and your grandma's great-grandma's all coming together and you're traveling together. It's a it's many-day journey. You would stay, and at some point, somebody starts singing the line of one of these songs. And then the whole congregation, the whole clan, the whole caravan would sing them. Some people believe they sang them in order. It was a part of the tradition of moving towards Jerusalem to worship God. And it was a part of not only preparing... Well, it was, a, it was preparing not just the habit... And the ritual, but also preparing their hearts as they ascended into Jerusalem. And this is what Psalm 124 said. The song and the tune has been lost to us, but the words remain. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. When people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Uh, This... uh, 
Past week on Wednesday night, uh, Amanda, the kids, and I, we went with some friends to a Japanese steakhouse. Anybody ever done the Japanese steakhouse, the hibachi, you know, where they cook it in front of you? They got the amazing knives. They cut up everything. It's really fun. It tastes amazing. You can't replicate that at home. There's a lot of smoke when you try to do that at home. It doesn't work right. We're there. We're, uh, we're enjoying it. We love it. You know, when they're doing their little routine, when they make the, the onion volcano, you know, that's our favorite part. And so we're sitting there eating. I'm having steak and chicken because I know you care. Jackson is devouring his shrimp. They, the man puts it on his plate and it's gone in like 30 seconds. All the shrimp gone from Jackson's plate. Annabeth is having chicken and I really wasn't paying what, attention to what anybody else was having. And uh, we're just enjoying the evening and the, the end comes. It's time to, you know, where you're waiting on the bill. The bill's not come yet, but you're waiting on it. Uh, Jackson has finished his food. All the shrimp is gone, but he's got some rice left over, and I'm doing this carb diet where I like to eat a lot of carbs. And so all of my rice was gone, and, and so I took a spoonful of his. And as soon as I took a bite, I knew I had gotten a little piece of shrimp or something had happened because I'm allergic to shrimp. I'm allergic to shellfish, and so immediately my mouth starts tingling. And uh, I wasn't that worried because I've been down this road three times before. The very first time I realized I was allergic to shellfish, I was 19 years old. I grew up in Missouri. We don't have good seafood up there. And so this, here in Houston, when I was 19, was the first time I ever had real shrimp, not the fake stuff that you can get at fake places, but the real stuff. I ate a big bowl full, uh, but nothing really bad happened. I got, I got dizzy, drank a bunch of water, and I was fine. A little while later, I got a little piece of lobster on accident. Uh, I couldn't afford it, and it was on accident, obviously. And, uh, and so my mouth started tingling a little bit, drank a lot of water. I was fine. And then the last time I had a reaction was probably nine and a half years ago. I was at a party, and somebody had the audacity to bring shrimp quesadillas. Who brings shrimp quesadillas? No one wants those. Don't bring those to the party. They're disgusting. Nobody wants those. Leave those at the grocery store. Um, somebody brought them, and I thought, thinking that they were normal, that they were chicken or steak, and they weren't. They were a little piece of shrimp. All that happened was my eyes started to water, drank a bunch of water. I was fine. So the other night... My mouth starts tingling a little bit, kind of gets some of those familiar feelings, and, and so I just start drinking some water. We had been cheap that night, and so that's what I had, water, and I'm drinking it. But I did feel that I needed to tell my wife I'm having a reaction. I must have gotten some shrimp residue or something, and I'm having a little reaction. She's like, is this a big deal? Is it a big deal? Big deal? I'm like, no, it's not a big deal. I'm fine. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to drink a little water. About the time that I said I was fine, my leg went numb. Now, I didn't know that that was a reaction to shellfish allergy, but we Googled it, and, you know, anything you find on Google is accurate, and it is a real reaction. And so I stand up and go, well, you know, I said I was fine. Turns out maybe I'm not fine, but we're going to be fine. I'm a classic underreactor. Uh, other people are overreactors. Some people are just reactors, and I am an underreactor. And so I'm trying to underreact, as is my pattern. And so I say, we're not going to make a big deal about it. You know, I'm going to go over here to the grocery store right behind us. I'm going to get some Benadryl. I'll be fine. Benadryl, water, time, heals all wounds. It's going to be great. And so I jump in the car with one of our friends while Amanda takes care of the bill. And uh, she drives me over to the grocery store just behind the Japanese steakhouse. I walk into the pharmacist. I find the pharmacist. I say, I'm having an allergic reaction to some shellfish that I had. I need some Benadryl. What do you suggest? She shows me the stuff to get. I buy the cheap stuff because even when you're dying, money matters. (laughs) And so I take the Benadryl right there, and I'm talking to the pharmacist. 
about the symptoms, about what to expect. And meanwhile, Amanda has now come to the grocery store, and she comes over and she hears us talking about the the uh, the symptoms. You know, I'm telling her the symptoms, the pharmacist, the symptoms. And Amanda jumps in, and he's not thinking clearly. I look at her and say, "What? What?" Yeah, she's like, yeah, you're not, like, firing up there. Like, there's something wrong. Like, you're being kind of weird. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. No, no, you're, you're being weird. I know it. There's something wrong with you mentally. And uh, so apparently that's a symptom. We didn't find that on Google. Actually, we did. We did find it on Google. We did find it on Google. So, therefore, Jesus and Google say it's true. So we're talking with the pharmacist. She says, you've got to give that medicine 20 minutes to work. You know, that's how long it takes. But if these three things are happening, then you want to go ahead to the emergency room. Well, as she's saying, these things, you know, may happen. They are happening to me. And so I'm like, well, let's go to the emergency room. And so we switch cars. And so our friends take our kids to get ice cream. And Amanda and I are in a borrowed car. And I start getting quiet once we get in the car because I'm like reflecting on my life. I'm pretty sure this is going to be fine, you know. But I I desperately do not want to hand this legacy down to my children. Man, my father was a great man. How did he pass away? A shrimp got him. You know, like that's, this is not how I want Jackson and Annabeth, who I love with all my heart too. I don't, that's not the story that I want to be told forever. You know, like beloved Curtis, you know, fragile, fragile. So I'm, but I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about you know, like my breathing is kind of labored at this point, And I'm just, I'm like, I'm just kind of in my brain right now thinking, well, my silence is freaking her out a little bit. So she's driving fast and furious style to the emergency room. We're in a parking lot. She passed somebody in the parking lot. It is amazing. 50 miles an hour in the parking lot. They honked at her. I was so proud of her. It was unbelievable. We're also going over a lot of speed bumps super, super fast. So it's like, you know, we said to our friend whose car it was, you know, I'm sorry, we'll buy you new tires next time. I'm hoping it's a long time and she forgets that we said that because tires are expensive. Um, We get to the emergency room. And we walk in, and they say, what's going on? And I tell them I'm having a reaction to some shellfish, and here's what's going on. And Amanda comes in with, uh, and he's not thinking clearly. And I said, I agree to disagree with my wife. And they give me medicine, and it turns out fine, not a big deal. But to prove to my wife this morning, who's here, that I was thinking clearly, well, one of the things that was going through my mind as I was not thinking clearly was Psalm 124, because that's what we're talking about today. And I knew that's what we were talking about today. Because sometimes you don't get to stand in the moment and say, I've made it this far and only good things have happened to me as I stand here. Like sometimes you just have the opportunity to stand in a moment and say, all I can say is I have made it this far. And I may not be standing with a lot of the things that I would like to be standing here with. I may not even be standing with a lot of the people that I wish I was, would have been standing here with. But I can say, praise God, I have made it so far. And that's the song that the Israelites are singing as they are ascending up into Jerusalem. I mean, the song is super simple. It's not complicated. It's not long. If it had not been the Lord on my side, we would not have made it. 
I mean, let's look at it together. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. So they're talking about some kind of enemy has been angry and vehement towards the Israelites and come against the Israelites, but the Lord was on their side. And so they survived. The enemy still came against them, but they survived. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Uh, Palestine has a very uh, you know, arid uh, culture. and the, uh, There's a lot of erosion there. I read this week. And there's a rainy season and a dry season. So because of the erosion, it cuts these well-worn paths into the landscape. And you have maybe seen pictures of what it looks like. So in the rainy season, those well-worn paths fill up with water. So flash floods are common there. And so this, this song and this part of the song would have meant a lot more to them than maybe it means to us in Houston, Texas. They said the flood came and it came, but it didn't sweep us away because the Lord was on our side. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We were almost in their mouth, or we were in their mouth, but their teeth didn't get us. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. We were in the snare. We were trapped, but we didn't stay trapped. Why? Because they said the Lord was on their side. Now, how do they know that the Lord was on their side? That feels kind of like a big thing to say, doesn't it? It feels like a big thing to claim. God is on my side. Well, they knew for, with confidence that God was on their side. And I want to show you in the scripture. So let's start back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning. There, you'll find some out on the tables. Feel free to take it. If you are new to the Bible and you're like, where is Genesis? We've all been there. Uh, feel free to use the table of contents to help you find any place that we're going today because we're going to go a lot of different places. Genesis chapter 15, you remember that in Genesis chapter 12, God picks this man named Abram out who later becomes Abraham. And he says to Abram, if you'll follow me away from your home, away from your city, I'm going to do some great things with you. And God's going to confirm that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And it says, he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half And laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. A reference to the slavery that's to come for Abraham's offspring in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. 
And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God had made this promise to Abram. Hey, Abram, if you'll follow me, I'm going to do some extraordinary things for you. And Abram has a very natural question that all of us would have. How do I know? How do I know? I can't see you. I can't see what you're saying. I'm just believing that what you're saying is going to happen. How do I know for sure? And so God takes a very earthly human practice of cutting a covenant, making a covenant. And God makes a covenant with Abram himself. God walks through this line of these split pieces. He said, I have obligated myself to you and to your offspring. Later in Exodus, after God does deliver the Israelites out of slavery, just as he told Abraham, God reaffirms that covenant with the Israelites from Mount Sinai, saying, the covenant I made with your father Abraham, it's not just for Abraham. I'm including all of you. It's for all the people. And that's the story of the Old Testament, how God held up his end of the covenant, how he protected them, how he provided for them, how he loved them, even when they were not that lovable. I mean, you think about how he did rescue them out of slavery in Egypt and what happens. They get to the edge of the Red Sea, a deep sea on one side and a pursuing army hoping to take them back to slavery on the other. And what does God do to hold up his end of the covenant? He splits the Red Sea. He does something unnatural, something supernatural to hold himself to his obligation and the Israelites walk across on dry land. They get down into the wilderness where they, they live with God. But they're in the wilderness. They're in the desert. Not a lot of water from the, in the desert. So what does he do? He makes water come from rocks in the desert. Not a lot of food in the desert. So what does he do? He's made a covenant. He has a relationship with them. So he brings bread and puts it on the ground in the form of manna in the morning. And in the evening, he flies quail in that just land for all the Israelites to come and eat. They get to the edge of the promised land. There's a, a, a river that's at flood stage in between them and the land that he was taking them. They're going to have to march men, women, children, all their possessions across a river at flood stage. So what does God do? He holds up the river on one end so they can walk across on dry land. They get into that land, which he promised Abraham. And what's there? Giants are there, they say. Cities that have these massive walls built like a fortress. And so what does he do? He just has them march around seven days. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times and they shout and all the walls come down. It's the story of the Old Testament, how God provides for his people, how he looks out for his people, who he has relationship with. Later, it's the Midianites who oppress the Israelites, so he sends Gideon. Later, it's the Philistines that oppress Israel, so he sends David. He holds up his end of the covenant. Then you get into the prophets and the prophets start saying crazy things like, hey, this covenant isn't just for one people. Some other nations are going to be added into this covenant. There's some other people who are going to be added in. And then you get to Jesus in Luke chapter 22, sitting at the table 
celebrating the Passover meal, which Jesus would have ascended into Jerusalem with his disciples singing the songs that we're talking about in these days. And he's sitting at that Passover meal and he holds up the cup. And what does he say? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. There's a new covenant. That's just not for one specific people who are born in one specific way from one specific family. It's for anybody. There's a, there's a door that's now been opened. The covenant has been expanded. It's been widened to make room for more people, which is where we get Galatians chapter 3. I want you to turn there. This is what he says, the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. What he's saying is, is if you want in on this new covenant, it doesn't come by birth. You don't have to be in the distinct lineage, physical lineage of Abraham. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a firstborn son or a second or thirdborn daughter. It doesn't matter if you are a man or it doesn't matter if you are a woman. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are sons of Abraham. You are heirs to the promise. You are in the covenant. So we can stand with Israel this morning, the true people of God, and say, God is with us in Christ. We can't say God is with me because I'm right. I like to say that. God is with me because clearly they are an idiot and I'm not an idiot. So he's with me. You can't say God is with me because he likes me better than he likes that person. You can't say God is with me because I live a more righteous life than they live. You can't say God is with me because I do all these things. I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I give, I serve. I don't watch certain things on TV. I don't go to R-rated movies, so God is with me. No, you can say God is with me in Christ. If you're in Christ, then God is with you. You are the people of God. Now that feels dangerous, doesn't it? It feels a little bit dangerous to to give anybody permission to claim that God is with them. Because we all know what's in the heart of human beings, don't we? In the heart of every human being is a need for permission. That's what we're all looking for, isn't it? It's permission. I want permission to feel a certain way. I want permission to act a certain way in conflict. I want permission to keep treating a person that certain way. And so it feels like if God is with me, God is on my side, then that is all the permission that I need. Yeah, I can keep acting like this at work. You know, even though it's a little unethical and I know I'm taking advantage of some people. Hey, God is on my side. And so... I have no idea what that was. I'm so sorry. Brandon, we know what that was back there? That was Jesus. Saying, be careful about claiming that he's on your side. Yeesh. 
we all want that permission. Because here's the tension of being a Christian, and we don't say this out loud enough, is we have this faith which we believe. And because we have this faith which we believe, and we believe the, the scripture is the word of God, now we're trying to live in a way that reflects that faith. But we've got all this side, this stuff inside of us that doesn't want to live like that. We got all this stuff inside of us, these desires, these urges inside of us that don't want any part of this righteous way of living. And so sometimes in our kind of messed up thinking, what we want is we want permission from God to keep being the way that we are naturally. Listen, naturally you want to grind somebody into the ground when they wrong you. That's very, very natural. And so if you can claim that God is on your side in the conflict, then that is all the permission that you and I need in the weakness of our human flesh to keep acting that way. You, keep on a free, you want to keep uh, freezing somebody out of their relationship, keep kind of them on the periphery, keep them circling around you, not let them in because you don't like them because they're not as good as you, whatever. I mean, if you believe that God is on your side, then maybe that's all the permission that you need to justify doing what is very, very natural So, I mean, we start saying God is on my side. That feels very, very dangerous. That's how you get football players claiming that they're going to win the Super Bowl because God is on their side. That's how you get countries who oppress other countries. That's how you get persecution. That's how you get genocide because somebody believed that God was on their side. And it feels dangerous to say something like that because you know your heart. And I know mine. And I'm looking for any kind of permission that allows me to keep acting the way that I want in my natural human flesh. But if that is in us this morning, that would use the truth of God's word that God is on our side to our own selfish end, then we're twisted from the beginning because I want to show you how Jesus responds to this. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. Because if there was anybody in history who could claim that Jesus was, or that God was on their side, it was Jesus. This is what happens when Jesus is baptized. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and lands on you, you can know that God is with you. That's a good sign. So if that happens to you this week, is God with me, and the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and lands on you while you're at work? Yeah, you're in good shape. All right, everybody clear on that? Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So if anybody could say, God is for me, God is with me, God is on my side, it was Jesus. God opened up the heavens to say that out loud when Jesus was baptized. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In Luke, it it says, describing the, the stage that we don't get a lot of scripture about between Jesus' boyhood and his manhood, it says that Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in favor with God. If anybody could say, God is on my side, God is with me, it was Jesus. 
In Luke chapter 4, Jesus claims a, a scripture from Isaiah that says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. If anybody was able to say, I know with certainty that God is on my side, it was Jesus. But I want you to see how Jesus lived with that knowledge. Turn to John chapter 5. says in verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show show Him so that you may marvel. See, When we realize that God is on our side, there's this real temptation to say, okay, God, you are with me. I get it. I believe it. So now I need you to be with me while I'm doing these things. You're with me, so now I need you to be with me while I'm trying to find a parking spot because I don't want to walk from the back because it's kind of rainy. I need you, you're with me, you're on my side, so I need you to be with me as I'm working up this deal, because it would be amazing. You're with me, so I need you to be with me. That's our natural reaction. And listen, we need to bring our request to God. You have full permission to bring your request to God. So this is not uh, us being embarrassed or shy about asking God for things. But look what Jesus does. I mean, Jesus could say with confidence, God is with me. God is on my side. But what does he say that he does? That he doesn't do anything on his own. He only does what he sees the Father doing. We are followers of Jesus. So ideally, in a perfect world, the way you're living your life and the way I'm living my life is as a follower of Jesus, I'm looking at Jesus asking, what is Jesus doing? And then seeing what he's doing and then doing that. And he is looking at the Father and doing what the Father is doing. So there's progression I'm looking at Jesus doing what he's doing as Jesus is looking at the Father doing what the Father's doing. But what I want to do, and maybe what you want to do when we realize that God is on our side, is we want the the Godhead to turn around. Jesus, you turn around. I know you've been looking at the Father, but you're with me, so now I need you to turn around and look at me because this is where I want to go. And if Jesus will turn around, then maybe the Father will turn around, and now I am the one who is leading this train. instead of the other way around. And a lot of my prayers are rooted in that thinking. This is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. This is what needs to happen. So if you could turn all of your movement to help me and I never consider, hey, Jesus, what are you doing in this situation? Because maybe I need to do less of what I'm doing and more of what you're doing. That's why some of our lives don't work very well. It's because we're doing all of the stuff that we're doing. And we're doing very little of the stuff that he's doing. That's why there's no movement and flow to your spiritual life. It's because you're spending all of your energy and all of your effort trying to redirect the flow of 
us to Jesus, Jesus to the Father, to get them to do what we want to do instead of just standing in line. But that's not the way it works. Jesus looks at the Father, and we look at Jesus. So there shouldn't be a a big disconnect between what God is doing and what you are doing. You know, the big question that we all want answered this morning is, you know, how do I know with 100% certainty that as I'm getting ready to do this thing, that God is going to be with me? Well, just ask yourself two questions. Are you in a relationship with God, a covenant relationship? Are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, then he is with you. He is on your side. And are you doing what he is doing? There shouldn't be a big disconnect between the stuff that he does and the stuff that you do. Because you should be looking at Jesus, doing what Jesus is doing, and Jesus is looking at the Father, doing what the Father is doing. You know, like, well, that's terribly unsatisfying. That's not what I wanted to know. If I do the stuff that God does, then he's on my side. That's not really what I was looking for. But it's true. I mean, you may be in like a marital conflict right now. Not that that ever happens on the way to church, but if it did once, you know, I mean, or just in any conflict with any person. Don't you want to know in that conflict that God is on your side? Yeah, everybody does. So ask yourself two questions when you're in conflict with somebody. Are you in a covenant relationship with God in Christ? And are you doing what he is doing? Well, how do I know if I'm doing what he's doing in conflict? Well, God is a peacemaker. He made peace with us through the blood of his own son. He is a peacemaker. So if you're doing what he's doing in conflict, you're going to be a peacemaker. And you can know with certainty that he is on your side as you make peace. Men, you ever get on the wrong side of your wife, have a little conflict, and you want to say to God, like, oh, she's so wrong, right? Like one time that happened to you in marriage. That's never happened to me. I'm, I read about it in a book. <laughs> that sometimes husbands feel that way. All right, so just ask yourself two questions, men, when you're in a tense moment with your wife, if God is on your side. Are you in a relationship with him, covenant relationship with him in Christ, and are you doing what he is doing. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus, that we should love our wives like Jesus loved the church. So men, you can know that God is on your side if you're loving your wife the way Jesus loves the church. And then I'm guessing that you won't have that much conflict if you and I step into that. But what about... Well, we'll get there in just a second. I was going to skip ahead, but I'm not. See, I spend so much of my time and energy trying to get Jesus to turn around and follow me. And listen, I don't even know where I'm going. I love taking Annabeth on a golf cart or four-wheeler or something like that because uh, she loves to drive. She's four. And... Uh, uh, it makes her so happy. Of course, she can't reach the pedals or anything, and so I'll do that part. And, and uh, you know, I don't entrust myself to a four-year-old usually, and so I got some kind of, like, last-minute jump in there. But I will let her turn the steering wheel and all that kind of stuff. But it's so interesting when Annabeth drives the golf cart and stuff like that because she, what happens is she just really ends up just going in a circle because she doesn't know where to go. She's four. She doesn't know when to turn left. She doesn't know when to turn right. 
She doesn't know when to keep going straight. She doesn't know if you, you know, make this little turn and cut over it, you end up in that other part that she likes. She doesn't know any of that because she's four. So we just kind of end up going in the same little circle. See, that's the thing about if we got our way and if God being on our side really meant that he was going to empower us and give us everything that we want. If it really did mean that, we wouldn't even know where to go. We just do the same things over and over again. I need your help at work. I need your help in this relationship. I need your help with money. I need your help with work. I need your help in this relationship. I need your help with money. And if if we were able to lead the train, if you were able to do that, or I was able to do that, it'd be really good for me but it would be really bad for the person sitting next to you. See, that's the thing about trying to get God to come our direction is when we're thinking about us, we're usually only thinking about us. And what's good for me is rarely good for somebody else. But if we stay in the flow of the progression where we look at Jesus as Jesus looks at the Father. He is able to bring good, not just for me and not just for you, but for everyone who is called according to his purpose. That's why here at Bayou City Fellowship, when we talk about vision, we don't talk about the 15 things that we're doing or this is our favorite part or that's our favorite part. We talk about what? Jesus. That's it. We don't have a big grand thing. We are about Jesus. And the reason that we fell into that is because we asked ourselves a couple of questions. The first question is, is what is the Holy Spirit always doing? What is the Spirit of God always doing? He is always bringing attention to Jesus. So we thought if we are always bringing attention to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit will never fail to be with us. And if we pick something, just all of a sudden, you know, what this church is going to be about, this church is only going to be about, mainly going to be about, primarily be about ministering to the homeless, which is amazing. Well, everybody whose passion is not that is going to have to either decide, do you want to make that your passion or do you need to go find somewhere else? But if we say, no, our passion and our vision is Jesus. He pulls me along with my calling and passion. And he pulls you along with your calling and passion. And he pulls the person sitting next to you along with their calling and passion. And we all get to be here. And now as a church, we're not just doing three things. We're doing hundreds of things every week. Not because we are doing it, but because you are doing it. Because we're following Jesus. So there's such small thinking and selfish thinking in me. When I want the flow to stop and I want them to turn around and follow me to what I need. But what about like gray areas, you know, like when it's not right or wrong, when there's not something in the Bible that says this is what God likes and 
what he doesn't like? What if I just have to make a decision about whether to move here or move there or take this job or that job and it's, it's neutral, it's not right or wrong? I, I want to know that God is with me then. How can I know that God is with me and things like that? I want you to turn to Psalm 51. What about like when we mess up? Because I'm guessing you're like me this week and there's going to have to be a moment when you turn your face to heaven and go, I'm sorry. I don't know what's the matter with me. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to think like that. I didn't want to say that. I'm sorry. What about then? Does, is God still with us then? When we blow it, yeah, Psalm 51, verse 17, this is what it says. The sacrifices of God, this meaning the sacrifices that God wants are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The New Testament version of that is found in James chapter four, when it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, you want the guaranteed way that God is not with you this week, that God is not on your side? You have an elevated heart in his presence. You want to guarantee that God is not with you? Then just go around proclaiming how your way is better than everyone else's way. How that your righteousness exceeds everyone else's righteousness. Because he opposes the proud. He stiff arms the proud but he gives grace to the humble. He does not reject humility ever. Even if the person who is coming to him in humility is dead wrong, that person is never thrown out of his presence. He does not despise humility. Humility is not something that we aspire to because we have all these misunderstandings of what humility is. Humility is not you admitting that you're wrong every single time. Humility is not you letting everyone else have their way. Humility is not low self-esteem. In fact, some of the most humble people I've ever met have been filled with confidence. Humility, I think, is understanding the way Psalm 124 ends. When it says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, there's not that much difference between you and an arrogant person. There's not that much difference between me and a proud person. In fact, depending on the day, you and I flop back and forth. The difference between a humble person and an arrogant person is an arrogant person doesn't know where to look for help. A humble person knows where their help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. See, The idea that God is on your side can lead you two ways. It can lead you to say, if God is on my side, then here are the 15 things on my to-do list that now are going to get done because he's on my side. Because he's on my side, get out of my way. Because he's on my side, then you need to bow and yield to me. He's on my side, so you need to accommodate me. Or God is on our side 
leads us to worship. I mean, do you know you? Because I know me. I know me. And I know how I order my life and I know my inner thoughts and my inner workings. And there's not one thing about that that should make God and his infinite holiness pick my side. There's not one thing that's appealing about my team on the inside to say that's the side that I want to be on. So the fact that he does choose to be on our side in Christ should not lead us to a place of arrogance. It should lead us place to humility where we bow before him and go, what am I worthy of for you to be on my side, for you to remember me, for you to be with me? That's the song that they're singing as they come in to Jerusalem. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, the Lord had not been on our side. And maybe you and I, we need to back it up and just start with, the Lord is on my side. And I already have enough to worship because of that. And then here are the endless ways that he's led me to this moment where I stand here. Maybe not with everything that I wish was here, but I'm still standing he's on my side in Christ let's pray Father we we humble ourselves before you God we don't take information like this and use it to exalt ourselves but we go low God we go low Why don't you just take a second in a moment of prayer and just in your own words, let's humble ourselves before God this morning.